BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverse impact. It's Friday, April 11th, and you're listening to Inquiring Minds. I'm Chris Mooney. And I'm Indre Viscontis. Each week, we bring you a new in-depth exploration of the space where science, politics, and society collide. We endeavor to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it all matters. You can find us on Twitter at Inquiring Show, on Facebook at Slash Inquiring Minds Podcast, and you can subscribe to the show on iTunes or any other podcasting app. I also want to add that this episode of Inquiring Minds is sponsored by the International Rescue Committee, and this is a great organization that is leading the way from harm to home for millions of people who are uprooted and threatened by conflict, disaster, and persecution around the world. So you can learn more about the IRC's life-saving programs in the U.S. and 40 countries at rescue.org. So this week for the show, I interviewed Neil Shubin. He's a paleontologist at the University of Chicago and one of the discoverers of Tiktaalik, this amazing creature that lived 375 million years ago and clearly marks a transitional phase between a fish that lived in the water and later animals like us that would live exclusively on land. And Shubin is also the author of the best-selling book, Your Inner Fish, which uses this discovery and other insights to show just how much our bodies reflect our evolutionary relationship, not just with fellow apes, not just with fellow mammals, but indeed with fish. And Your Inner Fish has just been adapted into a three-part series by PBS, whose first part just aired. So I invited Shubin on the show to talk about why our bodies themselves are, in effect, just sort of highly modified, highly modified fish bodies. And here's a little bit of what he had to say. Many of the muscles and nerves and bones I'm using to talk to you with right now and many of the muscles and nerves and bones you're using to hear me with right now correspond to gill structures in fish. And we know that because we can compare the development of fish and people and show how similar cells are doing different things. And then we can trace that evolution of that same story we see in the development. We can trace it with the fossils. This is a topic that I find endlessly fascinating. And in fact, in some of my prep work for my great courses, lectures, I delved more deeply into, uh, as it were, my inner fish, um, specifically when it comes to hearing. Uh, so if there was a grand designer, you'd think that he or she would have designed the ear canal to be optimized for hearing sound in air, right? Which is, you know, how we hear sound. But instead, the cochlea is a vestige of our fishy history. It's adapted for the water. And we had to evolve these intricate, tiny, tiny bones, the acicular bridge, essentially to help us convert the sound from air into water. 
that's an oversimplification, but you know, our ears are one of the best structures to study if you're wow. interested. In, I had no idea. Yeah. In this <laughs> tinkering aspect of evolution, right? The idea that nature is a tinkerer, not a designer. Yeah, I, I, that should be in his book. If it is not, it should have been almost like it's another perfect piece of evidence. But there are just so many of these pieces of evidence strewn everywhere in our anatomy. Absolutely. So that will be our interview for today. But first, let's talk about some science in the news. So, Indre, you remember, I'm going to ask you, what were you doing in 97 slash 98? Well, I was diligently uh, pursuing a bachelor's degree. Now I'm totally dating myself. Uh, but Yeah, well, actually, I was too. <laughs> I was in college. I was yeah, in college. I was in college too. And, you know, I remember listening to all kinds of electronica music and trying to be super cool. Huh. Okay. Well, I remember listening to the Verve Bittersweet Symphony. But I mean, you know, this is, you know, that was popular. Titanic won Best Picture. Windows 98 came out. And Google was founded. And all the world, I don't know if you remember, was obsessed with the weather. Because during 1997-98, we had a super El Nino that not only created a new peak for global average temperatures at the time, so at the time, 1998 was the hottest year on record, but it led to all kinds of freaky weather occurrences, and that included a Category 5 hurricane, Linda, that at one point actually looked like it might reach Southern California. You know, weird stuff happens during El Nino. And I'm bringing this up because now it's still early. But the people who watch the Pacific Ocean and know what's going on with El Nino are saying that a major El Nino might be in the process of developing again. So let's do our background here. What is El Nino? It's a global pattern of weather that's basically driven by what happens in the Pacific. Because in the Western Pacific, there's this huge pool of warm water that is creatively called the Pacific Warm Pool. <laughs> and normally, right, this is the wa- this is why you get so many typhoons off the coast of China and Japan is because basically this is just fueling them with all this heat. Once in a while, the trade winds change and they allow the warm water to travel back across the Pacific toward the Americas. And that just brings a huge amount of heat along with it. And so you get global changes in weather patterns, tons of rain on the west coast of the Americas, both North America and South America. You get less hurricanes in the Atlantic, more in the Pacific off of that same west coast of the Americas. Now, we don't know for certain whether we will get this super El Nino because they're you know, for now, we only know that it, there's a lot of evidence in place suggesting we could. There have been some reversals in the trade winds that are suggestive. There's been a powerful underwater heat wave moving westward. But if we do get one, if we do, a lot of people are betting that one thing that will happen will be that we'll shatter a new record for global average temperatures because the globe kept warming and El Ninos are always hotter. So you add the two together and you release a ton of heat from the Pacific into the atmosphere and everyone will stop saying, oh, global warming slowed down. That's for sure. Well, you know, I, I, from my recollection, when I was in Canada during the last one, I just remember a lot more snow. Um, but it'll be really interesting now that I'm living on the West Coast to see if we experience some of these hurricanes. I, I don't remember um, that, of course, as I wasn't here. Right. Well, it won't get to it won't get to San Fran, and let's let's face it, it didn't actually get to Southern Cal, but it was for a while. There's just so much more warm water off the coast of Mexico. It's so much hotter. You're going to get a ton of hurricane activity in El Nino, and then if if the track you know happens to be such that it follows the coast, you get cooler water pretty quickly. But you can if you got a Category Five and it just keeps on going, it's going to weaken. But hey, it could actually hit somewhere around San Diego, so it won't be a Category Five then. But this is something that that nature can 
have happen. Um, but overall, if if we have a major El Nino, it's all it's going to be the weather and climate story of the year for sure. So this is when you don't try to buy up coastal real estate in Mexico. Wait a year. <laughs> no, no. Well, not on the Pacific side, right? right. But there's all kinds of sweet spots on the uh, on the Gulf of Mexico side. Um, so cool. So you might have seen a video that's gone viral in the last few weeks. It's gotten almost 2 million views already on YouTube. And it supposedly shows a bunch of bison running in droves out of Yellowstone Park. Uh, and, I think I've seen this. Yeah. So yeah, you, it's and, one of those. Yeah. You might, you might see the headline, you know, they're, they're, they're running away from the super volcano, which is about to blow um, because we've just had, you know, biggest earthquake in the park since 1980 at 4.8 on the Richter scale. Um. So, yeah, have you seen this video? I feel like I've seen it. It probably flew by and I didn't press play on Facebook, but it's the kind of thing that, you know, it's it's that kind of thing. <laughs> yeah, I'm kind of jaded about these things, too, a little bit. And that, you know, jaded nature is is right, because for one thing, it turns out that those bison are actually running towards Yellowstone. <laughs> oops. Um, oops. Uh, they were filmed by a person who was there uh, as a tourist uh, before the earthquake hit, a couple weeks before the earthquake hit, uh, essentially, and he filmed them to show that they're enjoying their springtime run. Um, <laughs> so, so, so that part isn't true. But what's interesting, um, you know, it just, it, it turns out that the folks at Yellowstone say that every year during the migration patterns, animals go in and out of the park, uh, depending on where the food supply is, of course. You know, and of course, as we see these these suspicious or interesting animal behaviors, and then something big does happen, like an earthquake, um, we tend to rely on our confirmation bias uh, to make it seem as though one predicted the other, right? Um, of course, those animals run out of the park every year. It's just not every year that there's an earthquake. So that's the one that we remember. Um, but I did, I did read a little bit more about whether or not any animal is prescient of some kind of disaster event. So, and the most compelling story I found was one from 2009. Um, I believe it was published in 2010, uh, which was that there was a series of toads in Italy that seemed to predict the big earthquake in Aquila. Uh, and so they were, you know, they were being studied in a pond uh, by this one graduate student. And she noted that in just a few days, uh, the number of toads in the pond went from 96 to zero. She published in the Journal of Zoology. And so here she was actually, you know, looking at the behavior of these toads right up until the earthquake, as opposed to just looking back after the earthquake. So that was kind of interesting. Now, of course, there's a lot of reasons why this might have happened. And but she says that she was contacted by NASA shortly after publishing her data because they believe that perhaps the uh, shifting of the plates might cause changes in the chemistry of the pond. That is ionization and that, you know, making some molecules in the pond now toxic to the frogs. And that's what they were fleeing from. Yeah, interesting. So, I mean, it's not an entirely crazy idea. I mean, we know that some animals have different sensory apparatuses. That's probably not the right word than we do. I mean, we know that bats have different different abilities to sense things. So, presumably, they could sense other things. On the other hand, it's got this whole sort of mystical sort of quality to it that makes me a little skeptical animals predicting disasters. Yeah, exactly. I mean, and we've all seen those videos of a dog that, you know, gets active just before an earthquake hits, right? But how many dogs slept through, <laughs> right? Probably yeah. a lot more. <laughs> My dog probably would sleep right through. So, but but there's another, you know, if people are seizing on this, it's partly the, the woo-woo spooky animal uh, prescience thing. 
But the more serious thing is the whole super volcano thing. Um, they had, it's not a fake thing. They have done damage in the past and they could again someday. And we're talking about volcanoes that can be as much as sort of a hundred times more powerful than something like a, a Pinatubo. And the big impact, there are many, many impacts. Ash falls everywhere and that can be very deadly. But you can also just put so much of this stuff into the, into the stratosphere that you can cool the planet dramatically. And we're talking about, you know, in a mega, mega super volcano, something like 10 degrees, and it could last for a long time. So that could lead to extinctions, deaths. So if you're keeping track of your disasterology, uh, this is something that is not that incomparable to a meteor impact. Um, it's not imminent or anything, but it could happen someday. I think that's why people are sort of interested in this. Yeah, absolutely. And people do claim that there's some evidence that it's that it's imminent. And so let's evaluate that for a minute. So, you know, apparently, um, I think the last time or the, the it's it's we know it's erupted two other times, at least um, one was like 2.1 million years ago. And another one was a little bit more recently. And the last one was about 640,000 years ago. So people are looking at the intervals between these eruptions. And, you know, between the first two, it's like 0.88 million years uh, between the the second, the next two, it's like 0.66 million years. People are saying, look, you know, it's ramping up, right? Is that it's getting sooner and, and 640,000 years ago is about the time when we should expect the next one. But, you know, if you look at the average, it's actually 0.73. And so that's like a 90, yeah. <laughs> you know, that's, that's a, that's a tens of thousands of years of difference, right? So, yeah. um, no statistics prizes are being awarded to the people. Who are doing <laughs> no. Um, and what's, what's more uh, interesting is that in fact the scientists are saying that actually this particular vol volcano is ramping down. Um, so if you look at it, it's, its full history, it's ramping down. And also there will be clues that they will be able to pick up. They are monitoring this volcano all the time and they will have months notice uh, in order to you know make sure that people are safe if there is any kind of activity. And they say that the first activity you know will be something more um, limiting, like some lava flow as opposed to like a massive eruption. Got it. So what does the world do? And where is my disaster movie when I need it? When we get the sense that the super volcano, you know, I mean, the plot line is already laid down. What do you do? What do you do if you actually get that indicator? I don't know. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, you evacuate and, and, and try to can't evacuate the globe. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. But hopefully we'll the weather change. I mean, it seems to me that the weather change is the big thing with this. I mean, this is, you know, they're, they're disasterologists and they've cataloged all the ways that all the crazy things could wipe us out and super volcanoes always end up on the list. Yeah, no, absolutely. But, you know, it's give or take a few tens of thousands of years. Right. <laughs> right. Okay. So with that, let's take a short break and we'll be back with my interview with Neil Shubin. I want to let you know that this show is sponsored by the International Rescue Committee. This is this wonderful organization that provides medical care, clean water, education, and other assistance to millions of people who are uprooted by crisis in Syria, in South Sudan, and really around the world. So if you join Rescue Partners, which is the IRC's monthly giving program, you will receive a tote bag. You will also receive the knowledge that you are helping a very important humanitarian cause. And you can learn a great deal more at rescue.org. So go on over there and please check it out. Neil Shubin, welcome to Inquiring Minds. Hey, it's great to be here. It's a thrill to have you on. And let me first congratulate you on the fact that PBS has released or is releasing a three-part series based on your book, Your Inner Fish. Uh, it must feel good. 
Yeah, thank you. It's you know two years in the making, so it feels really good to see it out. Absolutely. So in this book uh, and in the special, you explain how our body itself reflects our very distant evolutionary origins all the way back to maybe the first fish or close to it that walked onto land. Uh, so I guess to start out, can you just sum up for us uh, the basic story and uh, get some background before we go into a little more detail? Sure. The basic story is this, that in every organ, every tissue, and every gene in our bodies, we contain one branch of the three and a half billion year history of life on our planet. Sounds strange, but true. But that history that we see in our own bodies is knowable. And it's knowable by the evidence we collect as, you know, as paleontologists cracking rocks and collecting fossils from around the world. It's knowable as molecular biologists tracing and comparing DNA uh, from different creatures. And it's knowable as embryologists developing mental biologists as we look at how animals develop from, from a single cell to, to an adult. So the, the book and the TV show are really telling this story of evolution that's inside our own bodies uh, by, by way of uh, discovery stories, by bringing the, the viewer or the reader along with us as we make discoveries as, and bring along the reasoning that we make and then the tools we use, both conceptual and scientific, uh, to make those discoveries. So what are some of the anatomical features that you would really flag in people and say there's just no way we would have that if not for our fishy origins? You know, it's kind of like, where do I start? Right. So you could, I mean, you could compare, you know, our hands compared to fish fins. And you can compare that by tracing the evolution uh, from fins to limbs, which is something I've done in my own research. And we can do that with fossils we collect from the Arctic and elsewhere in the world. We can also do it by looking at the DNA that builds, that builds our limbs. But the story gets even deeper. It, it goes into our, uh, our portions of our skull, much of our skull. You know, many of the muscles and nerves and bones I'm using to talk to you with right now. And many of the muscles and nerves and bones you're using to hear me with right now correspond to gill structures in fish. And we know that because we can compare the development of fish and people and show how similar cells are doing different things. And then we can trace that evolution of that same story we see in the development. We can trace it with the fossils. So what we try, we blend here are multiple lines of evidence that point to our connections. You know, other connections abound. Our, our lungs originally evolved in fish living in water. Um, the, the basic structure, architecture of our body uh, is seen in, in some of the earliest fish. Indeed, the genetic toolkit that builds that is even more ancient. It dates back to worm-like creatures that existed hundreds of millions of years ago. So, you know, this is a very rich evolutionary story. It's a rich evolutionary story that's, that's inside us. And a lot of the fun, of, honestly, about writing the book and, and, and doing the TV show was showing the discoveries, you know, because I think that's where, you know, that's where science gains its power. That's where we as scientists can change the conversation um, by focusing on discovery and evidence and so forth. Well, let me just ask you a somewhat weird anatomical question. Maybe there's an evolutionary answer. People want to know, why are there male nipples? Do we understand that yeah, one? Why are there male nipples? <laughs> well, there's two explanations for that. One is, you know, that you can't have female nipples without male nipples, that the, the genes are linked in many ways. Um, and in fact, you know, if you look at embryos early on, both males and females have the same genetic apparatus to build what's called the milk line where the nipples appear. So, you know, it, it, it may be we're, you know, we're carried on along the way by, uh, uh, our baggage, if you will, as males, uh, is basically to to profit from the uh, the trait, the the beneficial trait that's in females. Uh, we carry the genetic signature of those as well. That's the kind of cost of the thing. Got it. So, how much? This is this is the question that I was thinking as I as I watched this. 
How much has changed versus how much has stayed the same since the time of, let's say, 400 million years ago when, and we'll, I'll ask you about Tiktaalik, the sort of the, the fish um, that you discovered a little more. But I mean, how much uh, are we still having the same basic DNA? We know that organisms that are more closely related share more DNA. So if you did it as an analysis of the percent of DNA that we share um, with, say, the first fish that came on land, I mean, how, what percent would you end up with? Well, it depends on, you know, what kind of DNA you're comparing. So, you know, it's, that's actually a, a rough comparison because it's, sometimes it's comparing apples and oranges when you compare different parts of the genome. But the key point here is, though, a significant portion of our, of our DNA is shared with fish. And I'll give you a few examples. And so, you know, it's over 50%. I mean, well over 50%. But the key piece here that's, that's really relevant, it's not just the sheer amount, but it's the information content of that DNA that we share. So one of the stories in the book and one of the, you know, areas Areas of research that's very fertile right now, years after the book was published, um, is tracing the genetic toolkit that builds our limbs, such as you know with fingers and toes, tracing that toolkit and genes in living fish that have fins that don't have fingers and toes. And what is remarkable here is that when we look at the DNA of say a coelacanth, you know the famous living missing link fish, or or other fish, even a trout or a salmon, uh, what we'll find is that the genetic toolkit that builds their fins is very similar to the genetic toolkit that builds our limbs. And much of the evolution, we think, from fins to limbs didn't involve a whole lot of new genes. Uh, it involved using old genes in new ways, reduplicating them and modifying that. I mean, what we're seeing is a, an evolutionary template, if you will, that's been modified um, over time. So, yeah, it's not just the amount of DNA, which is significant, that's shared with fish, but it's the information in them. And let me just give you one experiment. We could take the genes, some of the genes that help build fingers in mice. We can trace them in fish, and then we can swap the genes between two creatures. We can do this experimentally. We could take the fish gene, put it in a mouse. We could put the mouse gene in a fish, and we can compare and, and analyze how has the function changed over time. And remarkably, in many cases, the function is not very different. It's really remarkable. They're just being, you know, they're the same function, just redeployed in different contexts. Got it. So the other thing I like about this story and about the, the first episode of the series, uh, which uh, I've already seen, uh, is that there, it happens in a, in a lot of different scenes where you're doing this science, and those, those range from the very remote, the Arctic, to the sort of mundane of Pennsylvania roadside where, you know, I guess you're, you get out of your car at the place where it says, beware of falling rocks. <laughs> tell tell <laughs> right, us a little right. bit more about, uh, about the places you had to go to do this research. Well, you know, the places that, you know, so, you know, it all starts, you know, when you're a paleontologist, right? We don't just, we, we, we design expeditions to find fossils. This is not a random process. We use the tools of evolutionary biology the tools of geology or geoscience to make predictions about likely places to find fossils. So the, our first hunt really was in Devonian age rocks, about 365 million years old in Pennsylvania, because they look to be the right kind of rock to hold early limbed animals, so-called tetrapods. And we worked there for a bit and we found a bunch of stuff. These are by the sides of roads and, you know, about an hour north of State College, Pennsylvania. I mean, a fun place to work, but not exactly, uh, you know, romantic, uh, you know, like the, the National Geographic style uh, expedition in the middle of the Gobi Desert. No, this was trucks were whizzing by all the time. But, you know, along the sides of these roads, we were finding some really informative stuff, you know, arm bones, shoulder bones, skull bones of early tetrapods. But during that process, we realized that we were in rocks way too young to answer the question we're interested in, you know, to find a real intermediate. 
we needed to go back in time about 10 million years. And we knew this. This was educated guesswork based on other discoveries colleagues were making around the world. So we were using, building on other people's discoveries. And so it became clear that the next spot uh, would have to be older, have to have similar rocks to Pennsylvania, but be about 10 million years older. So one thing led to another, and it's a funny story in the show, how we found them. We found them actually in a geological textbook, a <laughs> college textbook. Um, but we ended up in the Arctic, where we ended up working for six years, uh, really honing in on rocks uh, in the Arctic. It took us four seasons over six years, but uh, working in those sites, we found what we were looking for. Right. And that is, it's, it's Tiktaalik. And so I, I don't know how many people listening have heard of it before. I had heard of it before. Um, just tell us a little bit about this organism that is now so famous. Yeah, if I was to hold it in front of you, um, what you would see is a creature. The smallest ones are about four feet long. The biggest ones are about nine feet long. We have a number of specimens nowadays. Again, it's from the Devonian, around 375 million years old. But, you know, you'd look at it and you'd say, oh, golly, that's a fish. Look at that. It's got scales on its back and fins with fin rays. But then you might scratch your head because it has a flat head with eyes on top, which is very much like early tetrapods. Uh, the proportions are very much like early limbed animals as well. It has a neck. No fish has a neck. And you know what? When you look inside the fin and you take off those fin rays, you find an upper arm bone, a forearm, and a wrist. You find a shoulder, elbow, and even portions of a wrist and equivalents of a palm in this fish. It had lungs and gills. So it's a real mix. And what's beautiful about it is not just the fossil, okay? It's Because it is. It's a real, you know, anatomical mix between fish and land of the animal. But the power of this, and it's what we tried to accentuate in the show, is again the discovery story. That is, we didn't just luck into this thing, although there was a lot of luck involved ultimately in the, in the discovery, but it was, you know, we designed this expedition with the goal of finding this exact fossil. And we used the tools, again, of evolution and geology uh, to, to, as discovery tools to make a prediction about where to look, and prediction was confirmed. So we talk a great deal on this show about climate change. And of course, you actually found this fossil in the Arctic, which is the place that is changing most dramatically. And if you were doing it in the 90s, um, then probably the place where you're doing research has already changed a great deal because uh, yeah, that's... Significantly. Yeah, significantly. Um, yeah, exactly. What does that mean for science? Man almighty, it's so complicated. Yeah, that's a great question because, you know, I end up uh, seeing it every summer. We still work in the Arctic all on a different time period. And so I, I go there pretty much every summer, every other summer. And, you know, we're witnessing that climate change as we, as we, every year we go back. And one year was truly alarming. Two years ago, it was just, there was no sea ice in the area we work. And we're like north of Lancaster Sound. And I remember talking to the Inuit and they were alarmed. They were, there was a sense of, uh, you know, their, their world is, is changing. Their hunt is changing. Their lifestyle, their traditions are changing. Uh, and you couple that with all the other pressures that they face. It's, it's pretty dramatic. The, um, but the other piece is, you know, you're noticing changes in the landscape uh, and in the fauna and flora in terms of the timing of when these creatures are active. Um, it creates more rock for us to look at. Honestly, if you're a paleontologist uh, and you look at the aerial photos that were taken in 1959 and you can compare them to the aerial photos today, well, there's more rock to look at if you're a paleontologist. So I guess that's, you know, quote, good, unquote. Uh, but the reality is what's happened to the Arctic is geopolitical as well. The place is not only heated up in terms of climate, but with climate heating up, it's also heating up mineral, oil and gas, the, ex the extraction industries. Uh, it's heating up political interest in the area. So as a scientist, you're really feeling a lot of pressure there because the, um, the amount of military presence up there is larger. The uh, amount of corporate and industrial presence up there is quite a bit larger. You know, you just, I just feel, you know, my Arctic has changed, <laughs> you know, it's, uh, and you know, it's the climate is, it sort of forced this other set of changes as well. It's hard to be there and not feel it. 
But it's interesting that in some ways the the paleontologist is in a similar position to the petroleum geologist in that you have more access to what you're what you're, you're going I feel with. guilty for thinking that yeah. honestly yeah. <laughs> but it is true there's more rock to look at because fr- frankly we 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 look for you know places where you know the, the the glaciers have retreated because that's exposing rock and obviously we have a few more of those spots mm-hmm. so uh you, you've you've talked a lot about the similarities in the organizational structure of our bodies and how you see echoes of that and so many other organisms. I mean, this is something that in our high school textbooks, provided we were taught evolution, they, they called it homology. I think that's what I remember them calling it. And they showed us the whale's fin, right? And the bat's wing. I, I kind of remember this. Um, that's just one, one branch of the evidence for evolution, it seems like. Um, where does it fit into the, to the overall body of evidence? You know, so when you think about evolution, you know, you think about multiple concepts that are embedded there. The first is uh, common descent and descent with modification. And we can trace that. So the, the beautiful thing is we can trace the tree of life, you know, using the tools by which we, you know, which we can and modified versions of tools, which we, you know, can trace our own family ancestry. You know, we can trace our ancestry that goes beyond our human families to our, to our relatives, uh, in the animal kingdom and beyond. Uh, and the power of that lies, uh, in the anatomical evidence that could be pulled into Marshall to, the, to seeing the tree of life and our relatedness to other creatures, uh, but also the molecular evidence, which is actually increasingly powerful in the last two decades, that we, we can now compare whole genomes and begin to see our relatedness to other creatures with ever-increasing uh, precision. And that tree of life is actually a really fundamental tool because that, you know, as you mentioned the word homology, um, you know, the inner, your inner fish, my book is essentially a book about homology. That's what it is. Um, I never mentioned the word, but I just basically show how we know it and the tree of life and how we construct and separate good hypotheses of relationship from bad hypotheses of relationship. That's the underlying, you know, conceptual framework for the whole thing. Now, the other piece of evolution is the mechanisms of evolution in natural selection, genetic drift, the way that genetic changes happen within populations uh, and over time and how speciation happens happens. Those fields, too, have been transformed by the molecular um, revolution. You know, we can look at the genes that are at the basis of, you know, the formation of new species to a degree we could never have done so much as 10, 15 years ago. And, you know, so many of our textbook stories are being, you know, being um, being affected by these new data in just remarkable ways. They're, we're getting a lot more resolution. It's opening up a lot new, uh, many new questions we couldn't have even anticipated before. Um, so, you know, it's a reaction. I'd like to tell people it's a very exciting time to be a, an evolutionary biologist. If you're a paleontologist, we're opening up whole new worlds where we find great intermediate fossils, you know, from feathered dinosaurs to whales with legs and, you know, things like that, and to colic and other things and hominids. And if you're uh, somebody who's interested in the mechanisms of evolution, whether it's natural selection or speciation or what have you, the, you know, it's the molecular revolution, the genetic revolution has really given us wonderful tools as well. No, the the genetic evidence uh, is seems to me to be so incredibly powerful because basically you can almost you know, your case for evolution. You can now just go and actually look at the actual um, genetic sequence and compare. Yeah, no, that is so unbelievably stunning. You know what I mean? It's just like the power of that, and that's one of the reasons why I feel very privileged to have a laboratory. If you were here in my laboratory, I'm you know, doing this um, podcast from. Uh, I, you know, my lab is part molecular biology, part paleontology, right? And we, um, you know, and that, and, and we can bring those different tools from collecting fossils to looking at DNA to bear 
on one problem, you know, and that couldn't have been done 15, 20 years ago. And that kind of approach is multidisciplinary approach is really opening up the field in a big way. So it's a great time to be doing evolutionary biology, but there also seems to be a vast new light that's being shown on the wild ideas of those who deny it. Uh, maybe yep, because bet. Bill Nye debated Ken Ham. I don't know. Uh, it seems like it's cast a lot of attention on creationists. But have you had the tangle with creationists over comparative anatomy and homology? Has that have they actually been? You know, it's funny. Here's, I, I, you know, again, uh, you know, it's like my inbox is filled with uh, some interesting emails over time. <laughs> you know, the day TikTok was discovered, it was the lead story in the New York Times. And for the next two days, I had about, I counted, I had over 1,500 emails. I'd say most of them were high fives from people I didn't even know saying, wow, what a fabulous discovery. Uh, and a number of them were truly scary. Um, you know, so I decided at that point, you know, this is about the time. You know, I was beginning to think of, I was actually had thought of Interfish was beginning to take shape as a book. And, you know, I decided at that point, you know, I'm going to go give talks in Alabama, in South Carolina, in Oklahoma, you know, in Texas uh, and elsewhere where I'll bring Tiktaalik with me, you know, or the cast of Tiktaalik. So, for instance, and I've done this every year, um, you know, this year's Darwin Day, you know, I get lots of invitations. This year's Darwin Day, I spent a lot in Oklahoma. <laughs> um, you know, not exactly a hotbed of evolution, right? And I bring Tiktaalik, and what my strategy is, the discovery story. I focus like a laser beam, just like we did in the TV show, on the, dis- the tools of discovery, how we discovered Tiktaalik, what it means, and then I pull out Tiktaalik and say, here it is. The questions I almost always get, even if it's an ardent creationist crowd, then it shifts the conversation. It changes the conversation in that it's about the data. It's about the evidence. It's about the discovery. It's about how do you date those rocks? You know, how do you compare that creature to another creature? Well, you know, if we do that, we kind of win because what it means is it changes the conversation in a way where it's now about evidence. And, you know, if you can shift the conversation to where the conversation becomes about evidence and evaluating its qualities, you know, you're not going to change everybody's mind, but you're going to affect a few. There's so most definitely. And that's my, that's kind of my, my passion. That's kind of what I think I can bring to the table. Right. And, and so, you know, I've, yes, I've had to tangle, but it's always usually in the context of here's the discovery story of Tiktaalik. Here's what we know. Here's what we don't know. Here's what we're, we're out to discover. These are the tools we use. And almost universally, uh, I, you know, I, I get a, you know, there's a list of about 35 questions I get, you know, I haven't done it enough, you know, I have it in my head, you know, and it, 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 by focusing hardcore in the discovery story in an accessible way, uh, it can change the conversation. And I think that was one of the aspirations behind the show. The show is not about, you know, addressing creationism per se. It's about showing the power of scientific discovery. And there are multiple audiences we're after, just like I was in the book. You know, it was after you know people who are intimidated by science, people who perhaps hate science, and maybe those who it conflicts with their basic worldview. But you know, the tool for each of them, I think, can be the same. We can try. You know, let's focus on discovery and see where it gets us. And in the process, we'll probably kindle the interest of a few kids. Well, how do I mean? It seems like you've actually talked in person with a lot of people who might disagree with you. So I, I literally don't understand um, fully creationism, although I read a lot about it and am fascinated. I mean, it's it still seems bizarre to me that, you know, when I go to the zoo and I look at, you know, organisms and that are closely related to humans, you know, you go to the monkey house, you see the orangutan. I mean, it's just so obvious that evolution happened by comparing anatomy. Um, so, but to them it isn't. What do they, what do, they do when they're still not agreeing with you uh, and you're showing them clearly similar structures? Yeah. 
That's a good question. So that's, that's, you know, now you get into the issue here because it's not just about seeing evolution or not seeing evolution. It's about, you know, valuing evidence. Okay. And so, you know, when does evidence matter and when does evidence force you to change your mind? Okay. I could put the cards on the table as a scientist and say, yeah, these, these are the kinds of evidence that would change my mind. And if I'm talking to somebody who doesn't share that perspective, it's a one-way conversation. That's really hard. And, I, and that's where you get very frustrated. And usually I say, you know, look, we live in a world of evidence. You're not going to fly in an airplane, you know, where the engineers didn't use evidence to design that plane or take a drug that didn't have, you know, evidence behind it when, for the pharmacologists who made it or a cardiac surgeon who doesn't, you know, evaluate evidence in a procedure that they use. You know, so we, you know, or, you know, convict people based on, you know, on, on evidence, right? That's the idea. Evidence matters in our society. And when you start escaping from an evidence mode, we enter a scary age. So that's, you know, again, I try to keep the, co- the, the conversation focused on evidence. There are people who where it doesn't matter and, you know, they have to shrug and move on in that case. Because that, that's the bigger problem, right? I mean, because that affects climate change, that affects evolution, that affects so many things. So I, I don't want to beat the creationist thing to death, but I think that you're ideally positioned to answer one of the things that they say, which is um, one of the favored creationist arguments is that there are gaps in the fossil record or not enough transitional forms. Well, you found you you found a transitional form. So um, how do yeah, you... Yeah, and also I made yeah. two gaps. <laughs> yeah, right, that's <laughs> so, true, know, I guess. With every transitional fossil you find, you make two gaps in the fossil record. You know, we have, you know, the fact of the matter is it's really hard for things to become fossils, right? I mean, as you, I'm sure you know, you know, not every creature lives becomes a fossil because it takes a special set of circumstances to form them. And not every fossil that's, you know, embedded in the earth gets discovered by a paleontologist. Yet, despite that winnowing, that filtering, if you will, we have a lot of transitional fossils. And so many of them were discovered, you know, in the last 25 years. You know, you just think about the fish to tetrapod story. Tiktaalik is one of many, actually, um, that have been discovered over the years. Um, the uh, the bird dinosaur relationship with feathered uh, dinosaurs, the whale story showing their you know their, their return to the water in a way from four-legged ancestors, the hominid story, the list goes on and on. You know that doesn't mean there still aren't gaps. You know science is not about you know knowing everything. It's about having an evidence-based approach that can. You know, and there's always going to be gaps out there. If there weren't gaps, I'd be out of business. I wouldn't be a paleontologist anymore. And I'd go do something else. I'm here for the gaps. You know, but the fact of the matter is, you know, you find a transitional fossil, you create two gaps, and you're, you know, it's a never-ending quest in many ways. The questions go on. But if you're a successful scientist, what you're doing is you're not only providing answers, but you're providing new questions. And that's what it's about for me. The questions never stop. And, uh, you know, if they did, I wouldn't be a scientist anymore. Uh, here's a question that just comes to mind. I mean, how uh, underexplored or maybe sufficiently explored is our world now in the quest for finding fossils that might lead to more, even more transitional forms? I mean, have we barely scratched the surface of what's out there in rock formations, or have we actually done a great deal? No, we barely scratched the surface. I mean, we have so much to do. And you think, no, we know the surface. No, we don't. Furthermore, we now have new methods of scanning inside rocks that didn't exist 15 years ago. CT scanners can now scan inside rocks. And certainly we could see things in new ways. So, no, I mean, this is, we're entering a new age of discovery. Um, and paleontology is very much a big part of that. We now have new phylogenetic or evolutionary mechanisms, uh, the tools to, to, to see the tree of life. And, and so it's not, so there still remains so much to be discovered and new ways to, uh, to analyze those data that are ever more powerful using computational tools, imaging tools. So no, I mean, I think there, there's going to be a lot, a lot, a lot next, uh, next few decades are going to be really exciting. 
Well, that sounds that sounds like something that we'll certainly look forward to. So, if I could just ask you one or two more questions, I mean, what would be the big thing that you want people to take away from this exploration, exploration of where their bodies come from? I mean, how will that change how they live or how they look at themselves, or how would you want it to? Well, I want people to see the deep connections they share with the rest of life on our planet and to see how those connections affect their daily lives, that the hand they grab with, the, the body, they, the brain they used to think with is a really a mod, is modified from their distant ancestors. And those connections form a, you know, tools for us to better human well-being. We use those connections every day in biomedical research, work on flies, work on uh, worms, work on sea slugs, provide tools to understand human genetics, human memory and so forth. You know, if you look at the Nobel Prizes in medicine or physiology, they've got people working on flies and, and sea urchins and, and so forth. You know, just think about, you know, Cinerabditis elegans, a little tiny worm the size of a comma on a piece of paper. Yet that little worm has been the focus of two Nobel Prizes, people who are you know, providing insights into cancer and its treatment as well as uh, basic patterns of development. So those connections exist in us, that we are deeply, we are citizens of the earth, that we are connected to the other species that live on it, connected to the history of the planet, uh, and that those connections are important for our way forward. Well, I think that's well put, and I have no further questions. So uh, that was a, so no, that was great. And so um, Neil Shubin, thank you so much for being with us on Inquiring Minds. Hey, great to be here. So one of my favorite parts of that interview is when he describes how he goes to creationist parts of the country and brings along yeah. his fish. <laughs> like, you know, Big here's fish head. Yeah, here's here's <laughs> the evidence. What do you say about that? And I, you know, I'm sure of course if there are people who will just say, well, that's one of God's creations and and how do you know it's only, you know, it's more than 6,000 years old, etc. Um, but, you know, I think that that's that's in some ways really the right direction to go, right? Is to say, look, here's the evidence before you, you can touch it, you can see it, you know, well, probably you can't touch it, but um, anyway, that's compelling to me. No, it's, it's, I really enjoyed hearing him say that. I mean, it sounds like he gets obviously a lot of speaking invites and it sounds like he's actually targeting places, um, where it will not be easy and where he will get resistance. And then, yeah, to show up, show up with a fossil and make people, you know, feel it and touch it. Of course, this is why the creationists created a creation museum with their own, like, evidence that you can feel and touch and participate and occasionally even ride on the back of if it's a triceratops. Um, so, you know. <laughs> I mean, you know, they try to give you that uh, sensory uh, experience too, um, but that's that's why they do it is because that can be compelling. Yeah, that's right. It works. And I also mm -hmm. like the fact that, you know, he makes paleontology cool. Um, you know, it can sometimes be thought of as a pretty boring science because all you do is, you know, dig up things that have been long dead and, and so forth. But, you know, he seems to make it really fun. No, you know, you take a bunch of geeks, you go to the Arctic, you get to carry guns, you know, you get to be afraid of polar bears, <laughs> but then you get to spend the whole day like huddled on a rock face, freezing, you know, sort of chip, 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 but... <laughs> yeah, but polar bears. <laughs> polar bears, right. Polar bears. Okay, so that's it for another installment of Inquiring Minds, and thank you so much for joining us. You can find us on Twitter at Inquiring Show, on Facebook at Inquiring Minds Podcast, and you can now send us comments, feedback, future guest ideas, or anything else you'd like, like your cookie recipe, to inquiringminds at climatedesk.org. I want, I want guest cookies. 
So, once again, uh, this episode was sponsored by the International Rescue Committee, providing medical care, clean water, education, and other assistance to millions uprooted by crisis in Syria, South Sudan, and around the world. So, join Rescue Partners, which is the IRC's monthly giving program, and you will get a free tote bag, and you can do this by going to rescue.org and signing up. Inquiring Minds is produced by Adam Isaac in cooperation with Climate Desk, a journalistic collaboration that includes The Atlantic, the Center for Investigative Reporting, The Guardian, Grist, Mother Jones, Slate, Wired, and The Huffington Post. Our music is provided by the award-winning producer, Rian Sheehan, and we're your hosts. I'm Chris Mooney. And I'm Indre Viscontis. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.